there's like dudes in prison for like two decades for selling like a little bit of weed. And and she's just walking out of here with two. Ba- she she basically took maternity leave from prison. Like what's <laughs> happening? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I can be what I want to. Uh, I put my all in it like no days off. All right, what up? We're here. Sam, incredible shirt. Um, I mean. Enough said. <laughs> Just one man to another. I'd like to hit, issue a quick compliment and I'd like to move on. <laughs> Someone in the comments said, uh, oh, wow, Sam's dressed like a grown-up. All I was, all I was wearing was a, was a coat. And so I... I was What's the jacket. thing on top of his shirt? <laughs> so I had to bring it back down. I had to let people know, you know, I could play both sides here. Yeah. So Austin yeah. 316, baby. <laughs> uh, still got that dog in you, which I think is going to be the next shirt we make, is the uh, still got that dog in him. Um, okay, where do you want to start? First of all, did you do anything crazy this weekend? Because I feel like your weekends are a lot more interesting than mine. This weekend, I watched Cops on Sunday because that's what I do. <laughs> a solid session of Cops. <laughs> but then, so I'm... Um, I, I did this cut combine thing. So like I wanted to, I set like a new fitness goal every uh, quarter. And this year, this quarter, I wanted to score average for a wide receiver in the NFL combine. And if you Google like NFL combine averages, you can find them. And this Sunday, I had to do my bench press test, which is 225 times or 225 pounds. And I had to do it about 15 times. Uh, and I just about hit 15. And so my results for my combine test I almost scored average. I just missed it a little bit, but mostly I was there. Wow. Yeah. So I had, but, but the big discrepancy is when they do the combine, they use an electrical timer for the 40 and I did it by hand. So my hand time was the same as the electric time. Typically electric is, is, is slower, meaning you have to add a little bit on the hand time, but I kind of did it. I kind of did it. This was one of my favorite business ideas that still, I don't, I'm not aware of anyone has done. It's not my favorite in that I don't I don't think this is gonna be the best business. I just it's a product I wish existed, which is a traveling combine for your town. So basically the way I was thinking about it was for youth sports. So, you know, the market of like 33-year-old guys who really want to test themselves before they leave their athletic prime, that's that's you and that's a small market. But a big market is parents who really think their kid is a special snowflake. And so um, I was like, why don't they have a version of the combine where you get measured height, weight, you know, wingspan, speed, agility, strength, vertical leap, all that, um, and just do it for all kids who are in like competitive sports? Because like you've seen that for like travel soccer or travel baseball, parents spend thousands of dollars and like uproot their whole life just to kind of like pursue the kid's athletic dream, which is maybe actually the parent's athletic dream and just be able to say that, yeah, oh, he's really good. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's playing with kids two years older than him right now. They love that. They love saying that their kid's playing with kids, you know, yeah, there are only, there's 14 year olds in that league. And, um, and so, you know, I think that that product is great because it's basically the Tough mutter for little kids. So you would be able to charge, I don't know, $150 per kid to get tested, plus another $20 a year to keep it all on file, uh, you know, n- another 20 bucks to get the photo or the video montage that you're going to get to post to social media. And then every year you'll come back and get retested to see how did you do? Are you getting better? Or are you getting worse? What's your, what are your gains? So I think this could be a viable business. And I would love if this existed because I would love to go. I'd love to get my kids tested or my my niece tested and uh, even myself would love to to love to enroll. So I'm taking this a step further. First of all, I knew I was going to marry my wife because when I met her father, he had the ideal calves. So he had the ball, he had the ball, the calf. <laughs> Wait, you what know if, how like you, uh, I, I think I got a ball calf. Uh, well, usually people who are explosive, they have like a ball, like a, it looks like a little <laughs> tennis ball in their calf. I saw I saw his like skinny ankle with the ball in the calf and I was like all right. It's All right, skinny, we can do something skinny here. ankle has to go with it, right? That's a thing. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. thing. You need, skinny ankles. You need for... a skinny ankle. You need a skin. I remember I used to date a girl and she did not have a skinny ankle. And I was like, I don't know if we could do this. I don't know if it's going to work. <laughs> it's not you. It's me. 
Judging you. <laughs> yeah. That's a great way to put it. And then I, um, I remember Malcolm Gladwell had a book and he says, like, if you're born, uh, if you're the eldest in your class, you're more likely yeah, you to gotta be, a pro. be born in like September so that you missed the August cutoff. So you get a full year to go dominate those hoes. And so I was like, we're thinking about where, you know, as I'm thinking about family planning, I'm like, where are we going to live? What's the school year cutoff? Can we, can we fit it in right before that? And then this weekend I got out a piece of paper and I'm like, basically my life plan is I don't want to, I want to rent until I buy a home that I want to live in forever because yeah. moving sucks. Moving sucks. And like the house that I bought now, it was just like, oh, this is good enough. And then now I'm like, I don't want good enough. I want perfect. And so I'm just like plotting till, and so I'm thinking about what that right home is going to be. And I realized it has to have a five to 10,000 square foot like warehouse. So whichever sport they're in, we're going to build that. We're going to build Facility. that thing. So if it's, yeah. yeah, if it's, if it's hockey, gymnastics, doesn't matter what it is, we're building that there. And that <laughs> damn kid is going to get awesome at that. And so I'm planning all that out now. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. There's no secret formula for customer service. There is an all-new service hub from HubSpot, and it's bringing service and support together in one platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible. You can free up your customer support reps' time with an AI-powered help desk, so you can easily support and grow your customer base. The secret's out. Service hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Yeah, there's not a lot of houses with a five to 10,000 square foot warehouse attached to it. Just going to let you know, <laughs> you may not have a I'm building it. Selection. Well, I'm going to build oh, it. Building. I've already, okay. I've already looked it up. I've already <laughs> looked it up. I'm building this thing. Also, I have a theory that because my wife and I were from different, like very, very different ethnicity uh, background. Don't get canceled. I think our kid, I, well, I think <laughs> I, what I'm saying is I think if we mix all of these genes into one child, hopefully they're going to be a super baby. You know, they won't get right. sick. They'll have strong calves. We'll see. I don't you know. You know what's funny? But when you say it like that, you know, it's strange, but but acceptable socially. If you had just said the opposite, you're like, yo, yeah, me and wife, we have the same background. We're pure. Then all of a sudden, <laughs> you, you, you stepped out of bounds. So uh, No, I want I want a, a diverse <laughs> kid. They're going to be a super baby because my wife uh, is is mixed race. And I'm telling you, she doesn't get sick. There's like all these things about her that like I like <laughs> that like whenever she takes medicine, she never has the side effects. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I'm just saying she's a super baby. Uh, so we'll see what's going to happen with that. I will keep everyone updated, though. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're waiting <laughs> eagerly. <laughs> I've got a few interesting topics. You want to talk about this Elizabeth Holmes thing first, really, really quickly? Dude, so funny. Explain explain what what you what you saw. I don't have a New York Times subscription, by the way, so I only saw the headline and the photo. You, I, I assume you pay for the New York Times. Can you tell me what, what was in this story and, and explain this whole thing? I will. So basically on Sunday, yesterday, today's Monday, she, uh, Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, you know, uh, fraudster, whatever. She, The story of this is she was convicted of defrauding investors upwards of hundreds of millions of dollars, got sentenced to 12 years in prison. She pulled... So a, a wild move where she had a baby and then the baby, baby one is two or three years old. Baby two is now like six months old. And she's making her plea to the government saying, actually, I have a newborn. You can't put me in prison. And they bought it and they did it. And so they, they delayed her prison sentence. I'm not sure how it's going to end up. New York Times did a big expose on her. Expose or like positive feature. It seemed like a positive feature. Does expose mean negative? Because this was not negative. This was yeah, expose incredibly is like positive. Exposed. <laughs> it's like, oh, just like a well, guy with an accent saying exposed. <laughs> they exposed her as being a wonderful human is what they did. Because <laughs> uh, they make her sound like heavenly. And I well, read, read the, the headline. Liz Holm wants you to forget about Elizabeth. And the whole story is about how Elizabeth was this persona and how her new persona is Liz. And she's a normal mom. She speaks like a normal woman. You know, Elizabeth Holmes was known as she would talk like this and she would wear like a black turtleneck and whatever. And she, and then she admits she's like, I did that because I was a woman. I'm blonde. And I want to be taken seriously. So I had a low voice. But listen to this uh, and, and the pictures of her now. She's got long hair. She's wearing blue jeans and she looks like a mom. She looks like me, honestly. If I'm a woman and you go look at this picture, we look alike. Um, but listen to this one. <laughs> she does. He's, I mean, she looks just like me. It's like, Elizabeth, it says, Liz Holmes wants you to forget about Elizabeth. The black turtlenecks are gone. So is the deep voice. And she wants you to meet her new persona, a mom. 
and uh, and this is embarrassing, honestly. For the New York Times to do this is is pretty. <laughs> it's pretty embarrassing. People get mad at us for bringing some people on the podcast to do interviews with. No, 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 no. New York Times po- posting this photo of Sampar with a wig, saying, and then doing this rebrand from Elizabeth Holmes to Liz Holmes. Liz Holmes, are you kidding me? And saying so, her, her new persona. I mean, this l- is absurd. Listen to this story. So here's an expert. I can't, uh, I can't shake us up. So Mr. Evans is her husband. I think Billy Evans. So in the waning days of Theranos, Miss Holmes got a dog, a Siberian Husky named Balto. Last year, when a mountain lion carried Balto away from the front porch, Miss Holmes spent 16 hours searching the woods, digging through the brambles and poison oak, hoping to find him alive. Everyone knew that he was dead, but Miss Holmes kept searching. She was relentless. The certainty, the fanaticism. It's the same way Miss Holmes kept hanging on to Theranos. Miss Holmes eventually found her beloved husky, Balto, in the woods. But by then, the dog had been torn apart by a mountain lion. And it's this like whole story about how her seeking her dog is just her getting carried up in just the fanaticism. And she's really well-intentioned, but she just got caught up in it. It's like pretty, pretty wild. And I have to remind people, I wrote an article. I actually posted it on here. I wrote an article in 2016. So I want to call myself... I wrote this in 2015. And the headline of my article is, the coverage of Theranos is utter bullshit. And the first sentence is, Elizabeth Holmes has been thrusted into the spotlight as a scapegoat, scapegoat for all things wrong with Silicon Valley. But I find the media coverage around Theranos drama to be utter bullshit. And I explained why I think she didn't, she's not doing anything wrong and how she's being hated on. I left the article up because I'm like, you can't, can't take down a mistake. You got to leave it up. <laughs> but I, I fell for this. And when I read this article about New York Times, I just realized, I think I'm just a little, a little sissy. I fall for all this stuff. I read this and I'm like, oh, you're right. She's just like you and me. Like, let's, let's not send her to prison. I fall for all this stuff. I mean, look at this. this. This is like there's a picture of her and this guy and their two babies sitting on a bunch of rocks by the beach barefoot. Do you see this? I don't know if you see this photo. Yes. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tweet it out. First of all, it looks. Are you using mid-journey? What is this? Why does this look so fake? Secondly, like this whole like you can't just get a new haircut and drop half your name. Like if I got a buzz cut and came on here and said, I'm Shah Puri. You can't be like, oh, that's Shah. Shaw's a great Shaw's a great dad. He doesn't care about money. Shaw, Shaw doesn't tweet controversial things. He's, he's a different kind now. He's a dad. And then I, I take my kid to a, a place with some rocks and take, take a photo. That doesn't work. Like, you know, this, it is working though. It is working though. This is the greatest rebrand. Do you know who James Todd Smith the third is? No, who's that? LL Cool J, baby. <laughs> at oh least, my God. At least James Todd Smith had the decency to like fully change it up and try to get a whole new persona. This is crazy that she is, uh, that they're just trying to make this happen. I mean, I don't understand what's going on. It's working though. She's not, she's not in jail. She was supposed to report to prison like three weeks, three weeks ago. There's like dudes in prison for like two decades for selling like a little bit of weed. And, uh, and and she's just walking out of here with two. Ba- she she basically took maternity leave from prison. Like what's happening? I don't understand. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. You know what? And you know what's another thing that's kind of crazy is do you ever follow Ross Ulbricht on or Ulbrich on Twitter? So Ross Ulbricht is the guy who killed or, or he ran Silk Road, and Silk Road was like a drug marketplace. And at the time, it, in like three years, it did like two billion dollars in sales. He uh, also is accused of um, did a murder for hire for three people or four people. None of the people died, but the police took pictures of the people pretending to be dead and sent it to Ross. And then he hired the fake killer, which was the police. He hired them again and again. And so anyway, he got life in prison and he tweets about it. I'm not one of those guys that thinks that he doesn't he he should go to prison. But dude, life is a long ass time for for. That's, all that's the a time. long time, you know. What I mean? <laughs> that's all the time, and he's tweeting in prison, and I feel so sorry for these guys. I fall, I fall for all this stuff. I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm soft. I think. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> okay, so this you is, think Ross is, you think Ross deserves life? I thought like 25 years is is a nice. Well, is that nice actually what number. a life sentence is? Isn't a life sentence actually only like 22 years or something? 
No, he got life without parole. Like he's he's in there forever. And he they, probably has multiple all, life sentences, right? And uh, it went all the way up to uh, the Supreme Court. So they so basically the only way I believe he's going to get out of prison is if a president uh, says uh, what what's it called where they um uh put you out of prison. I forget the word, but uh, that's like the only way that he's ever going to get out. And Biden I don't think needs a to like get him confused by oh, my nephew Ross. Ah. <laughs> 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 yeah, a telemarketer needs to get call him. Out of there. <laughs> yeah, a telemarketer needs to call Biden. Pretend to be. Uh, yeah. Oh, we have your cousin. <laughs> yeah, someone from India needs to act like they work at Apple or the yeah, IRS. Your nephew to Ross to figure out what's going on. Gotten into trouble. Can you help him? Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. It is a podcast that we want you to check out. It's called D2C Pod. It's hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas. It is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. And this is a podcast about all things direct to consumer, D2C. It's e-commerce stores. It's how you optimize your brand. And they're talking with founders, marketers, and the platform creators about all kinds of things that you need to know for D2C. You know, website conversion, paid ads, Facebook ads, consumer trends, email marketing. If you want to know the stories behind your favorite brands, this podcast is for you. They did an episode recently about scaling creator growth and influencer incentives that I thought was pretty cool. So check it out. Listen to DTC Pod wherever you get your podcasts. I have a few more topics. What do you got? What do you got that's interesting? So I want to tell you about it. I have a, I have a feature here. I got a Billy of the Week for you. A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? A billion dollars. It's been a little while since I have a good had a good Billy of the Week. I kind of felt one bubbling up a little bit. And sure enough, I got one. Okay, so here's... I'm going to tell you some things about this person's career. And uh, you can you might know who it is. You may not. Okay, so this is somebody who's... Um, so they've had a very successful business career. Sold a company uh, to Berkshire Hathaway, actually. So they sold a, a, a company that had done five billion dollars in a 10-year span of, of sales okay wow impressive um they do also, i have your interest now yeah yeah, you yeah, do? yeah i got one eyebrow up all right let me see if i get that other eyebrow up um they've won an emmy they were like manager that. of run dmc and 50 cent was their intern at the at the time huh so music dominated business dominated uh how about what's um, uh what's an emmy and Emmy is um, the musical TV? awards, I think. Oh, yeah, Emmy is actually TV. And I, so this person, uh, they wrote jingles for 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 TV and, and stuff like that. And that's that's one way they, they made their their bones. But they also managed Ooh. Run DMC, which was the hottest rap group in the world at the time. And Fifty Cent was. I think it. I know who you're talking about. They also uh, you're a fit you're you're a fit guy. I see I see a cut or two in, in the in that those arms. The uh, this guy's run over fifty marathons. Has run a hundred miles. In uh, 24 hours, and actually li- had David Goggins live with him for 30 days, and ended up writing a book about it. Sounds pretty pretty interesting. He's a part owner of an NBA team. Does he have a successful wife? He, that's the best part about it. In his marriage, he's not even the most successful one. Married who I someone who I think is the youngest female billionaire um, in the world. So incredible, incredible pull on his part. Um, let's see. Do I have anything else good about him here? Well, I think you missed one, uh, something very interesting. The company okay. that did five billion, t- five or ten billion, or whatever you said, um, billions in sales, wasn't that a jet company? It was a private jet company. Fractional ownership of private jets. The person. I, oh, the, oh, there, there's a few more. They also were a key partner in a in a CPG brand. Everybody wants to start a, start a CPG brand. See it in store shelves one day. Did that. Zico Coconut Water. You ever heard of that one? Sold to Coca-Cola. Yeah. Got it everywhere. This is somebody... I think they also wrote... I think they also wrote the jingle, the official jingle for the New York Knicks for That's some time. Right. Did, sure did. Sure did. Um, in, in addition to that, sells online courses. Yeah, he's like one of us. He's just like us, these billionaires. <laughs> 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 I'm talking about... Would you like to, to, to guess who I'm talking about here? Say it. Say yeah, it. Jesse Itzler. So uh, Jesse Itzler is the uh, Billy of the Week. This guy's got a fascinating career, right? I I am like, everybody's got a different thing they admire. The thing I admire the most in people is people who play the game their way on their on their terms and their rules. And one of the ways you see that is people who have multiple chapters in their career where they're able to turn the page and do something completely different. 
So for somebody who started out in the kind of like jingle writing business to then be like a manager of a, of a, of a famous, you know, uh, rap squad to then starting a private jet company to then living in a monastery with monks to then becoming an endurance athlete to then becoming an NBA owner to then doing coconut water. Like I love people who have done multiple chapters of their career. And I want to kind of talk about some of these different things he did. Can I run you through his timeline here? Of what he's done. Yeah. And I, I I read the book. It's called Living with Seal. It was basically the book I think that got David Goggins to be famous. It was awesome. It was a good book. Oh, was that before David Goggins kind of was like super well known? Yeah. In the book, I don't even think he mentions David's name. And then it came out. <laughs> oh, wow. It came out who, who this person was. I think he, Jesse was at a marathon and he saw this guy and David Goggins, you know, everyone knows he's like a six foot six black dude who's like ripped. And that's not typically what an ultra marathon runner looks like. And right. he became friends with them and hired him. So here's what he did. So he started uh, back in 1995, started something called Alphabet City Sports Records. And these guys were making basically like music, um, it was sports marketing, music production. And they do it for three years. They sell it for $4 million. To uh, to some like you know small a small acquisition so get there that's how he got his first million and uh, stays there for a little bit then they they him and the same guy I think uh, start Marquee Jets so Marquee Jets was basically like how do you buy hours on a private jet without buying the private jet so how can you get more people access to private jets and so it'd be like you would buy twenty five hours of flight time on a private jet. And it's like a debit card. You get to just go use it, then you get to buy more hours, whatever, whatever you want. If you get a whole bunch of people doing that, you might be able to use these jets a lot more efficiently than they're being used when, when just one person owns it that's sitting on a runway 90% of the time. Was and, that a big business? So they never really they never fully released any numbers. The one thing he said is they did five billion in sales in a 10-year period, which is a lot of yeah, sales. But I, I'm wondering I'm not sure if I'm not sure of the economics of that, though, because it's like if you sell, they didn't sell jets, but if you sold jets, like that doesn't necessarily like a jet costs $20 million. You actually only make 500K from it. I don't you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't actually Here's know what he like, said. if it's legit. Here's what he said in an interview. I'll put it this way. We were extremely profitable. We did cumulative 5 billion in sales, 5 billion over 10 years. So he says we were extremely profitable. So we'll take that. I also think that when you sell to Berkshire Hathaway, they're not in the habit of buying unprofitable businesses. So um, they, they sold, well, they sold to Berkshire Hathaway's company, NetJets, which is like, you know, one of their, one of their companies. So they, they sold to NetJets. So then uh, Zico Coconut Water. So these guys have been around for four years. He partners with them and uh, goes to them and says, look, let me invest. Let me help you guys grow this thing. It was kind of like small at the time. And in the same year he invests, he gets Coca-Cola to invest $15 million, And then eventually they sell the whole thing to Coca-Cola. I'm not sure how much. They didn't disclose that. Um, but basically in a, in a five-year period, four or five-year period, he helps Zico Coconut Water go from kind of unknown to pretty well-known and, uh, and sold in 2013 to, to Coke. Um, they've, done the same, they've done a similar thing. They invested in Kind Bars uh, as well. Uh, he's got like basically, he's got this brand investor group called a hundred mile group. And that's what they do. They've also, they invested in something called sheets, energy strips with LeBron and Serena Williams and a whole bunch of famous people. That one failed. It was like caffeine. You just put a strip on your tongue yeah. and it melts and it gives you like energy. Uh, but that one didn't, didn't work out. Uh, Pitbull also a uh, angel investor in that one. So uh, he bought a, he was part of the group that bought uh, a piece of the, the Atlanta Hawks, which is, I think where he, I think he lives in Atlanta. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, they have a house in Atlanta and there, I follow him on Instagram. He's always in, I think he owns a fat townhouse in New York. And he's also RVing. <laughs> I've seen them like RV, like in a, this huge tour bus looking RV thing. Dude, um, he, I, I'm all, I also think he has like six kids too. The guy does it all. Yeah, I know. Qua quadruple threat, dare I say. So he, uh, so he also started this thing called 29029 Everlast, Eversting. And so what it is is basically they rent a mountain and they bring together like food, music, and it's an it's a endurance event where you can walk, run, climb, crawl, whatever you want to do up this mountain. And then you take the gondola back down until, and you keep going up and down, up and down until you've done 29,029 feet, which is the height of Mount Everest. So it's like a way to hike Everest without going to Everest and without doing the, the, the extreme risk of, uh, 
of, of surviving Everest. He's got like his all day running club. You probably know about this one. It's a paid yeah. membership club for, for runners, basically 400 bucks for the, for the year. And, uh, He's wrote two books. He was a rapper back in the day, back in 1991. He was a rapper called Jesse James and uh, wrote the jingle, the, the New York Knicks theme song, Go, Go, NY, Go. And uh, I mean, just done it all. Really, really incredible, like variety in his career. I think this is prolific, prolific, That's a good yeah. word, Pro- prolific. The guy's prolific. Was he? Ma- and then his wife is Sarah Blakely, who sold Spanx, I think it was. Yeah, she and that created Spanx. Spanx. Yeah. And Spanx was just acquired for like two or three billion or something like that. Do you know what the final? It was just bought by Blackstone, BlackRock or Blackstone, whichever one is the one that buys companies bought it. Yep. And if if I remember correctly, that company was entirely bootstrapped. One point two billion. One point two billion. I think she owned most of it. Yeah. So like, they're killing it. Imagine being Jesse and not the most successful one financially in the relationship. Right. That's a that's a good catch. <laughs> yeah <laughs> what's like the best thing I, I wanted to make a joke there about like you know in the house he does the dishes or something like that I mean, what's like the uh what, what would have been the joke there for for him being like uh the subordinate in the house i think he manages the people who do the dishes at this point <laughs> but he's definitely managing people no that i i've been following them for a while jesse's been he kind of like became the self-help guru and i was yeah. turned off by him and then i actually started following him more and i was like oh no you're actually pretty awesome and he's the one he's made uh so he's been on the forefront of a lot of really popular health trends so he was really into saunaing for a long time and now like hot and cold exposure is, is quite popular he's been doing that for years uh, he's also been doing fasting. I would follow him like years ago and he would go like five days without eating and he would try all these weird health things. And now a lot of these things are popular. He was, he's been doing it for a while. And in his book, uh, it's called living with seal. He basically found David Goggins, David Goggins lived with him for 30 days. It's an awesome book. It's a really good book. I mean, he tells all these crazy stories about this guy. And so I'm a big fan of Jesse. Once I got to know him, I was turned off when I like first heard about him. And then I realized he's pretty badass. It's funny you say that. I had the same same reaction. I saw him just in a bunch of like public speaking slash like ads being like, you got to take my course and do whatever. And I was like, you know, usually, typically people who are like pretty self-promotional with that sort of stuff. It's like their their main business is actually the talking. Uh, like the, their main business is the selling you on how to be successful, not like having been successful themselves. That's just like a general rule of thumb. So I was really surprised when I looked into it. And I was like, oh, wait, actually, this guy's like pretty prolific. He He's pretty legit. I'm surprised. I, I had that opinion of him, though. I kind of bucketed him mentally as like online business guru guy. Um, you know, but maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe 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 that was a, a total mischaracterization now that I see kind of all the stuff he's done. I also think one really interesting thing is, uh, have you heard about his pickles thing? No, what's that? So, oh, by the way, I invited him on the podcast. We follow each other on Twitter. So I DM'd him last night and I was like, hey, you should come on. I want to hear I want to hear about some of the stories that the experiments that didn't work out because this is all the the wins. I'm I'm sure if you're a guy who's tried this many different things, you had to have a bunch of uh a bunch of you know trial and error along the way. So he posted this on Instagram last month. He goes, Why I'm excited about pickles. All caps. And he goes, Last week, I said I wanted to buy or partner with a pickle company, and boxes of pickles have been showing up in my house all week. It's exciting. I'm doing a live taste test this week. Uh, they're also different. Lots of people asking me, why pickles? Here's why. He goes, first of all, can you name five pickle companies? I'm, I hate pickles. I don't, I don't know. Can you name any pickle companies? <laughs> There's probably only two or three that I like to buy. I buy a lot of pickles. I'm a, a big pickle guy. Yeah, big in the pickle pickle scene. So he says, can you name five pickle companies? Exactly. It's a crowded market, but not many dominant players. Second, pickles are underrated. Americans eat 20 billion pickles a year, and there is no buzz in the category. Not much fun for creativity. All the packaging is the same. Number three, the average American eats nine pounds of pickles per year. (laughs) Number four, the average American household buys a new jar every 53 days. Number five, clearly pickles are a big deal. Entrepreneurs look to make things better. Often those new ideas come in the, in the form of products they use daily. They get excited when they see a new lane and I see a new lane here. And so um, he created this thing, this pickle company called Hoya Yaya Pickles. And he's like, this is the name of our new company. We just need the perfect pickle. Is that like a Yiddish thing? 
I have no idea. Well, pickles uh, are like a popular amongst Jewish people. He's Jewish. Is Hoya? Is that like a maybe it's like a Yiddish name? I don't know. It's a, it's a funny name. And he says, it says, if you go to their bio, they only have 2,000 followers right now, but I'm, I'm going to follow this. I want to hear the story play out. He goes, we're crowdsourcing our brand while we create the best pickle company, while we find the best pickle company to partner with. DM if you have a clean ingredient pickle company. And then he's basically like, uh, like it's got a feed and it's like, here's a picture of Adam Sandler casually eating a jar of pickles. <laughs> it's like, he's just trying to build this pickle company. He's trying to do the coconut water thing again for pickles this time. And uh, I find this, I, I this think you could really probably pull it off, dude. Pickles are awesome. I'm, I, I like Jesse. We should get him on. If Jesse, if, if this makes it to you, this will make it to you, anytime. Yeah, and remember when you I went to HustleCon, your conference, and um, there was the guy who created Method Soap, and he created Ali Vitamins, he created Welly Band Aids, he created three hit consumer, you know, CPG goods uh, that were sitting in Ryan Target. Something. Eric Ryan, I think is his name. It's him and his Eric brother. Ryan. Yeah, and, and he's uh, like a he's like a he's like a flamboyant looking guy. He wears like these bright glasses, and he his hair's combed uh, exotically. I like that guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He looks like he uh, was born inside of a Warby Parker or something. So he uh, he was on stage and he gave a great talk at your conference. One of the things he said, they were like, "How do you?" It was like, "How do you come up with ideas?" Like, which you did band aids, you did vitamins, you did soap. What? How do you choose? Where do you see the open space? And he said basically the same thing that Jesse just said. He goes. I walk down the aisles of a grocery store and I just wait till I see a sea of sameness. So basically, a sea of sameness is an area where there's a shelf where you just see like a ton of products with no differentiation. It's just a bunch. He's like, for soap, go look at the soap aisle. It was just green bottles of the same product in the same shape sitting there everywhere. He's like, so we came out with a different bottle that was blue and had clean ingredients. That was going to be our thing, and that was Method Soap. He's like, go to the Band-Aid section. Same thing. Sea of sameness, whereas we took a different approach. And he's like, Band-Aids were trying to all be this like nude color that was like same color as your skin. And he's like, but nobody's skin is actually that color. So it's just like this like kind of, you know, you're just trying to like hide something. He goes, we, you know, we believe, you know, you're, you're, every cut is a, a badge of honor. It's a great story to tell. And so we want to put a badge on that, on that, uh, on that wound that stands out. And that was his approach to that one or whatever. And so it's the same thing with the vitamins aisle. He's like, the vitamins aisle was just a bunch of labels that all said like vitamin D3, B12, you know, C, blah, blah, blah. And he came in and with Ollie, they have like a different look of jar and it'll say like better sleep or it'll say better hair and nails or whatever, right? Like it'll say the benefit of the vitamin, not the vitamin itself. And so just taking a slightly different approach to these like kind of stale categories was the, was the idea. And I think, if you go down the pickle aisle, it's probably a pretty stale category. It's probably is a sea of sameness. And so I think this is going to work. Well, Jesse, if you're listening, come on, man. Come on on. Come on the thing. I, I got like a, we were, I was, one time I was doing one of these events and we were looking at speakers and we typically had never paid speakers. And for some reason, his name popped up and like his agent sent, or some agent sent like how much his fee is. And it was like $100,000 to get him come, to come and talk. So the guy's killing it in a variety of places. <laughs> That's right. Um, all right. I have another interesting person. Um, and I'm going to explain why I found this person. Have you ever heard the phrase, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything? Hate that phrase. Why do you hate that phrase? Because I do a bunch of things terribly. And I'm like, does that mean I'm going to do everything terribly? Uh, so I hate it because if it's true, I'm in trouble. So I believe that that phrase to be true. And I believe it to be true because I've always... I've got on myself because I'm not entirely like you, but I'm a little bit like you where I like to like, you know, free ball it. I free ball life. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I just I try to figure out as I go. But my lack of discipline and my lack of process sometimes really hurts me. And so I'm trying to make up for that. And so I've, over the past couple of years, I've been obsessed with the phrase, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. So for example, you're late for this pod. You are also late for your kids' Home, Home Depot, Depot class. class. That's so, right. <laughs> so the way you do that one thing is the way you do everything, and it's like one of the. That's one of the reasons why the military they make you make your bed in the morning is because they say if you start making your bed in the morning, that means you're going to eat breakfast the correct way. That means you're going to run the right way, which inevitably you're going to fight the right way. And so, like I believe in that. And so I was looking for examples of that. And so, have you ever heard of this company called uh, Rakuten? So the company called Rakuten, it's basically like Amazon in Japan. It started by this guy named, uh, what his name is, he goes by Mickey. So Mickey, uh, Mickey Tani is his name. And he's similar to like Jeff Bezos in Japan, where he's like this kind of like pretty hardcore guy, but he's lovable and he's 
He's a titan of industry. So Rakuten is like Amazon in Japan. It has 32,000 employees, 14 billion in revenue. This huge thing. And I love reading about Japanese entrepreneurs because there's something about their culture that fascinates me. And they have uh, this thing where he has like uh, a handbook that he gives every employee. And I got a hold of that handbook a few years ago and I read it. And one thing that stuck out to me was in chapter zero, the very first thing that they have you do, the whole what that chapter is about, is it's called the, uh, it, the book is called The Basic Principles. But in chapter zero, it's called, they outline how at their offices, they don't have any janitors. And the reason why they don't have any janitors is every Tuesday at four o'clock, they have an hour of clean time, which basically means that uh, so no janitors come by, but every week at the same time in the morning, everyone at Rakuten from the CEO to the lowest level staff cleans their workspace. They take out rags and spray bottles. And they clean off their surfaces. They pick up trash. They get on their hands and knees and they polish the legs of the chairs. And it's part of the company of the culture. And uh, it's been like that since the beginning, since the company was around. And it's the purpose of it is to foster a sense of ownership. He says, we do this activity to remind ourselves that everything the company does is relevant to each and every one of us to keep a sense of direct involvement top of mind. It's also an opportunity to reaffirm that the entire company is a team by having everyone, regardless of position, work together on the same task. And I read this when I was leading the hustle and I tried to make that a thing and it didn't work. No one, no one got into it. No, I got into I'm it. I'm so glad you said that last part because I've done this so many times. I've just Michael Scotted it so many times where I will read something or hear something or have some kind of crazy idea. But usually it's I hear, I heard some cool person did some cool thing. And then I'll try it in our office. And I just got these looks like, okay. And then within four days, the thing is gone. And I'm like, oh, man, I really needed a different like force of will or charisma or some like a leather jacket. I needed something. I'm missing Bruh, something to make this thing. Because a thing. the way you do one thing is the way you do everything, man. <laughs> you didn't do a good enough job. Neither did I. And once I failed at that, I realized I need to do this stuff even more. And so with Hampton, <laughs> with, with Hampton, I'm trying to figure out what is that thing, you know, that we can all do. And I realized right now it's our Zoom setups. So I actually, I linked it down here in oh, our document. Okay. But I have this, I have this. So if you go to scroll all the way down to where it says Zoom, I have this document called How to Look Good on Camera. And the reason I do that is because when people apply to Hampton, we interview everyone. And then me or Joe or someone else goes and watches the interview to see if that person should be approved. And I saw one of our guys, his name's Alex Pattis. He works at Hampton and he's awesome. But I saw that his camera setup <laughs> was horrible. I was like, dude, this looks like a ransom video you filmed on a Nokia camera. Like this looks really bad. And so we're going to have to like, <laughs> we're going to have to like fix this. You know, first impressions matter. And so I created this guide on how to make your zoom camera look good. And then we gave everyone a budget to go and buy like the proper lighting and things like that. And that's like my one thing that I'm trying to implement now where it's like, I won't talk to you unless your zoom camera looks great. It has to look good. And it doesn't have to look like professional like you and me, like a DSLR camera. But it's got to look pretty good. And you can make it look pretty good with like $500. And so we're making everyone have their Zoom camera look great. So first of all, this doc is hilarious. And the video of the, the picture of the guy who looks like the ransom guy is hilarious. Um, I think you're close, but I don't think you quite got it. I hate to, I hate okay. to do that to Tell you. Tell me more. As a friend to just pop the bubble like that. But I think you got half of it right. Meaning, I think you, your solution is great but you picked the wrong area. Meaning, this is too logical. It's too quantifiable why, they, why this is a good idea. You said, well, first impressions matter. Everybody agrees with that. And you say, well, you're doing sales essentially for the company, so you need to like show up the right way. It's almost like you could calculate the ROI. The beauty of the polish the chairs on your leg chairs or whatever is that it's unnecessary. Same thing with the make your bed in the morning first thing or wake up at 4.30 in the morning just to harden yourself as a person or take a cold shower is it's got to have some, it's got to be something you kind of don't want to do or seems unnecessary to do. And it's like, but that's the point. So what's an example? This is almost like you kind of got to do it. This is almost like, uh, yeah, it makes sense. I agree. I'm not taking a leap of faith here. I'm just doing what, you know, I, maybe I was held back by money or the tech setup and I just didn't get around to it. Um, so I think it's good, but I think you need something that's a little bit more story worthy, which is like, yeah, at Hampton, we made everybody blank. And I think if you say, and we made everybody fix their camera setup, it's not going to have that same showmanship. 
It's not going to have the same uh, punchiness as if it's something that was completely unnecessary <laughs> to do. <laughs> so I've got to figure out what that thing is, though. But I, but I desperately want it. I want, <laughs> I want a shtick. Oh yeah, I love a, a good shtick. You need a shtick. I love a good shtick. I'm a big fan of shticks. I think they add a lot. Right now, my current shtick is your your zoom camera has to look good. It's got to look great. You get a everybody has to get one. a small tattoo on their ankle of a date five years in the future, which is when Hampton will be worth a billion dollars. Right? <laughs> you have to go. You have to go pledge, baby. You got to go get get branded if you're gonna get on this. But train. I love that stuff. And that's another thing we're thinking about Hampton is we're like, what rituals do like our members need to have in order to get them bought in? And so I'm like trying to like research like fraternities and sororities. But I love this stuff in the same way that Tony Robbins, his shtick is that uh, what's it called? The uh, firewalk. Yeah. Walk on coal. Which like isn't even that big of a deal, is it? Have you walked on coal? Yeah, I did. it. I've done it twice at his events. Um, yeah, it's well, like a pretty the, sanitary the, thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's there's no there's no no risk in doing this. <laughs> Basically. He's like, yeah, you got to get your mindset right. You got to get in state. And when you're in state, you could do anything. It's like, I'm pretty sure that like, they basically just make you stand on this thing that's wet before. So you get like moisture on the bottom of your foot. And then you could just walk across these coals and it's not going to like, unless you stood there and stayed there, it won't uh, make it past that layer of water or whatever. There's some like, it's just actually science that if you're, if you walk across right. this much thing for this much time with this much water on your foot, you're not going to get in. You're not going to have any problems. And so a great uh, actor, uh, dude, a great actor needs a good set and good props. And I'm like reading this book about JP Morgan. JP Morgan was this guy in the he was Gilded Age, whatever, rich guy. And he one time was trying to settle an agreement with like five different like union heads of like different steel companies. And he goes, come out to my boat and we're going to go for a boat ride and we're going to discuss. He gets on the boat and he goes, all right, everyone. And he like the the pilot of the boat uh, like goes off in a rowboat. He goes, we don't have a um, captain. Uh, we're stranded out here until we settle a deal. We are not leaving until the deal is done. <laughs> and it's that pizzazz, that showmanship. Every great, every great actor needs a good set. He he set up that set wonderfully. And I'm constantly looking for what's our ritual, what's our set going to be. How can I like well, add the showmanship? I've gone down this, this road game? before, and I studied a bunch of different like kind of rituals. Basically, anybody that has a really strong community, what what is it? Everything from actual cults. Uh, European soccer clubs where the fans are just insane. Um, like I went to Duke and we used to live in a tent for three months, which is basically living in a line to try to get into the big game. Really? And everybody behave, Everybody behaves a certain way. People who don't even like basketball are living in a tent for three months just to do this, just to, because they get swept up in the, in the rituals, the movement. Um, I remember, uh, I'd never been to Burning Man, but I talked to people and I was like, dude, there's something about Burning Man that gets people to act totally differently than their normal behavior. What is it? And they told me that when you enter Burning Man, I might butcher this because again, I've never been, but when you get to Burning Man, so you first you wait in line in, in your car basically for hours, hours and hours trying to just get to the entrance. And when you get to the entrance, I, apparently you kind of like, you get out and they give you a name. They give you like your, your new name, your burner name. And then you like roll around in the sand or some shit like that. Have you heard this? Yeah, like Firefox Lion Boy. Yeah, and yeah, then you like roll in like, the sand, and then, like, that's like your fucking like entrance thing or whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, I did something at my last company that was kind of like that, which was um, just roll around the streets of Soma. No, <laughs> no I'm just joking. Yuck. I, we had a uh, we had a, a meeting once. I was every, everybody had been at the company for that, like the uh, the what's it like the the hepatitis huddle. Everyone's gonna go out in the streets of Soma and roll around. <laughs> 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 it's syringe Sunday, baby. Get on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> Go pick one up. We're cleaning these streets up with our body. The uh but I did this thing where after six months of working, I um I called a team meeting and I basically gave a presentation to the team about each one of them. And I basically said, This is this this is Sam. This is Sam's story, and this is Sam's superpower. And I gave everybody a superpower. And I was like, This is um this is Derek. Derek was our designer. I said, designers are notoriously, they're just artists. They're fickle. They need inspiration. They, you give them a deadline. Artists are terrible with deadlines. And, uh, but Derek's superpower is that Derek is the mailman. He delivers every day of the week, except on Sundays. And I was like, Derek, if you give him something at 9 a.m., he will have it to you by 5 p.m. every single day without fail, except Sundays. You message Derek, he's not going to get back to you. 
And I was like, Derek, which is like, it's totally not true, but you've just implanted that into him. It was like mostly true. Everybody's thing was like believably, <laughs> believably true, but it's amazing. Then everybody started living up to it. Everybody started re- referring to him as the mailman. And then he would like, sure enough, he would always deliver them. He never didn't deliver because he had to live up, give people a reputation to live up to. Um, with Furkan, I was like, Furkan, his superpower is that He'll always lend you five dollars whenever you ask for it. Just you ask for him, he's got you. <laughs> he's always got some change on him. Always, always good for twenty. He, um, I was like, he melts bullshit, and I was like, he is just a bullshit melter. You can't bring bullshit around him. It's like radioactive; it'll just start to melt right away. And so, he otherwise, Furkan was pretty like uh, direct, and I think some people, you know, were intimidated by him, and they felt like he was like you know criticizing them when he would say something. But then they reframed it as he's just using the super. He's just, he just, he's great at identifying a melting bullshit. It's not you. It's, it's the shit that he's melting. And so, um, so I tried to do that for everybody. And I, I really, that was one of the few like management random, like random experiment sticks that actually worked that people really like, they liked mm-hmm. that they had a superpower. And then they kind of, I named it and then I reinforced it. And people, uh, people started using that one actually in the office, whereas most things, or it's just me trying to make fetch happen. And they're like, it's not going to happen. Well, I remember early in my career, like I worked the only job I ever had. This guy had a shtick and he would try to, he would get everyone to clap, like slow clap before Synchronize a meeting. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like that. And I remember thinking like, this is so stupid. And then after a couple of weeks, I was like, all right, Love it's cool. Slow clap. Now I'm a, yeah, now I'm a little bit older and I'm like, uh, shtick is good. A good shtick <laughs> is great. Like, it's really good. A lot of that, like, performative stuff. I, I used to think, I'm I'm too cool for this. I don't need this. And then you realize, like, no, man. Humans are not logical. We need emotion. Like, this emotional stuff matters. Like, the difference between a, a highly motivated person and their, who's using their emotions effectively is significantly better than someone. I mean, that's like, if you look at, like, different wars, like, you could, like, yes. look at, like, who is, like, fired up the right way versus who's not. And it really has a massive difference. I think that uh, leadership, basically, if you want to be a leader, like three things are true. The first is that you have a higher standard for yourself than anybody else has for you. So it doesn't really matter what your job title is, but if you hold yourself to a higher standard than your manager holds you to, you are a leader. And so that's the first, to me, first definition of a leader. Second is somebody who understands what the emotional state is and what it needs to be and can transfer it. So basically, anybody who can understand that morale is low, it needs to be high they can shift the mood. They can shift the energy. Or everybody's a little too comfortable. We need to get some, a sense of urgency. They, they understand the state, uh, the emotional state, and they know how to shift it. That's two. And then the third is they see things how they actually are. Not worse than they are. Not better than they are. How they actually are. And then they paint a picture of how it's going to be better than it currently is. To me, those are the three Are you things. reading this? Are you reading this off something? No, that's just... Wow! Straight off the dome. That's a good little. That's a that's a good little uh, a good little thing. There, next tweet. There you go. That's a great one, actually. <laughs> if I if I wasn't a retired um, Twitter artist, I would have tweeted that one. Um, I got one other quick one for you. I want to read you, Justin. Yeah, yeah. I've been eager to see what you're going to say. I want to read you something. So this was uh, this you're was, on that Justin Mayer's tip. So we talked about Justin Mayer's at the last pod. Justin's yeah. a, a very fantastic entrepreneur. You clearly been reading his blog. You've been obsessing. I actually, somebody sent this to me um, afterwards. So I haven't, I have only read this screenshot that they sent. Um, somebody sent this to Ben. They go, I feel this like you need to read This the second time this. you've done this. Last time you read, you said you were reading a book and I was asking about the book and you're like, I've actually, uh, you, you go, I just read this awesome book and turns out you were five <laughs> pages in. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> you love it first sight. You know what you know. <laughs> All right. So here's what it says. Here's the, here's the quote from his blog. It says, I give the same advice to friends who want to start a company. Startups are momentum plays. That's the key thing. Startups are momentum plays. You choose, you choose the idea you are most excited about. You put a date on the calendar for three to six months. At that date, you're allowed to reflect on your commitment level. Until then, you do not spend any time questioning it. Should I be chasing X idea over there? Should I be doing this over here? No. You put blinders on for a period of time. You allow yourself to dig into the problem space and spend your early time actually working on the thing versus intellectualizing. Is this the exact perfect, right, and obviously huge thing I should be working on? At least that's what I've struggled with when working on something new. I love that. That hit home for me. Uh, 
startups are momentum plays and how you have to put blinders on for a period of time to just actually do the thing versus intellectually, like constantly questioning or considering the thing versus 10 other things and paralysis by analysis. Um, What do you think of that? Yeah, I've told you about this. I think I have this thing called worry time where I say like, all right, today of the week, I can worry about these things. Once that hour is up, no more worry time. It's only due time. I can I can go back and reflect and figure out my worries and figure out what's like legit and what's not at a later date. Sometimes I'll do it six months out. So like when I was searching for kind of like where you are now, when I was searching for which company to start, I go, all right, for the next six months, it's plan mode. All I'm going to do is read, consume. I'm not going to decide a thing. I'm just going to consume and read. And then at the end of six months, then I'll make a decision. And uh, so I, I love setting like clear dates where you can't do anything. I also love momentum. So when someone talks to me about starting a business, I go, try and see if you can get sales in the next 24 hours. Like, right. what's the least amount of, what's the smallest thing you could do to get a sale in 24 hours? Because the second you make $1, if everything, it feels like changes. It's like as if you had poor eyesight and now you have glasses on. <laughs> like that, that little, that little bit of eyesight gives you a boosted energy and you feel significantly better to get the second dollar, which makes getting to a hundred and then a thousand easier. Once you're at a thousand, you can go to a million. So, right. and you have this really cool line. You say, a, B, Z, where you go, you worry about step A and how to get to B, and then don't worry about anything else. But you can think about Z occasionally, which is like your big motivating factor. But don't think about, you know, all the other whatever steps. the other letters are. In the, yeah. And this reminds me of something I've seen a bunch, and I have a sensitivity towards it because I did this, which is um, a lot of people want to do like startup studio, idea lab. I want to do multiple things at once, basically. So they want to do parallel entrepreneurship. I ran an idea lab for five, six years or so, and I loved it because it's the most fun thing you could possibly do. It's like you get, I had a blank check and an awesome team, and I could pursue not just any idea, many ideas at the same time. And I could go from meeting to meeting to meeting and have all this amazing variety of adventures and challenges and ups and downs. And it was like, I felt like I got 20 years of experience in four. But notice that I said experience instead of success (laughs) because it was a lot of lessons learned and a lot of skill sharpening. It wasn't a lot of winning. And If you would have had to have stick to one idea, do you think that would have been better? Or if you would have had a smaller budget? Sticking to one idea would have been far better. Or just, uh, I'll, I'll give you kind of the three options. So there's what I was doing, which is parallel entrepreneurship. So you basically take multiple ideas and you pursue them in parallel. Um, This is an easy trap to fall into once you already have a win under your belt. This is why you've seen, um, you know, Mark Pickus with Zynga created an idea lab. Kevin Rose created an idea lab. The guy from Uber created an idea lab. The guy from, uh, you know, whatever. There's there's like 10 of these examples out there. That's usually successful founder, wants to do startups still, but has... Too many interests, too many ideas, more ideas than time. So they create a lab, a studio that's going to create multiple hits is the idea. And almost none of them have any hits whatsoever. Um, zero. Zero is the, is the average and the median for, for these, for these uh, studios. They don't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for a bunch of reasons I could get into, but it's this form of parallel entrepreneurship. It's very sexy, but uh, not great for actually winning. So there's parallel, then there's serial entrepreneurship. Serial entrepreneurship is like the Jesse Itzler thing, which is like, I'm going to do this for this period of time, and then I'm going to do a different thing for the next period of time, or I'm going to take this one thing, and if it doesn't work, I'll pivot it into something else, and then I'll try that for a few years. But I'm going to give each one a several-year you know, chapter, basically, of, of effort and focus and like full intensity on one, one thing. But then I'm willing to switch what the one thing is. I'm not trying to run the same company for a decade. Uh, or stay in the same industry for for 25 years of my life, I'm going to switch around. I'm going to hop around. So that's serial. And then there's the last one, which is repeat entrepreneur. It's a person who actually does the same company or stays in the same space. It's like, uh, I created one D2C brand, I'm going to create another D2C brand. Or I run one company and I'm just going to run it for 15, 20 years. Or um, you know, I did a newsletter business, I'm going to do another newsletter business. And that's repeat entrepreneurship. And so I personally have tried Parallel I've tried cereal. I haven't really tried repeat. I've stayed away from that one. I think if you wanted order of in, in order of most likely to succeed, repeat is number one. Cereal number two, parallel number three. 
And in terms of fun, parallel is number one, serial is number two, repeat is number three. And so I actually think that the correct decision for me is serial. It's the has enough fun and enough winning uh, that that's the that's the choice versus going for maximum success probability or maximum fun with lowest success probability. Which idea do you think would have been the one that you should have stuck with at Monkey Inferno? I think for the most part, it was ideas that we weren't what we should have done. So what we did do versus what we should have done. What we did do was we tried to create hit social apps. Why? Because. Before that, the the main the guy who was running it, who hired me, and the guy who uh, became the main investor, or was the main investor, they had built a social network called Bebo. They had competed with Facebook and MySpace back in the heyday of social networks. They sold it for $850 million. Facebook went on to become worth $850 billion. And there was always this sort of like, shoulda, woulda, coulda. And at the time, people were pretty down on Facebook and felt like there was going to be something new. But nobody knew what it was. And sure enough, it turned out to be you know Instagram, then Snapchat, then uh, TikTok eventually. And so new things did come out. That part was right. But the wrong part was trying to recreate, rechase that dream because it was just so low chances of success. And so we built messaging apps and social networking apps and all this stuff. And it just was really, really hard to get it to work. Um, what we should have done was we should have built either tools for startups or tools for developers. Because we knew what the pain points of an early stage startup were, and we had a bunch of developers. We had like 18 developers. And so it was like, we could have built products that what, were... What was the total budget? What was your budget for the... Do you know, like 3 million, 4 million? I think we burned about 3 to 4 million a year um, in funding. And Which we isn't had, that much money for, for 20 people. Well, we also had... Uh, it wasn't fully 20. Uh, 20 was like where it got to at the peak, but also... I would say the core team was like, let's say 15 people. So 15 people, I think you can do the math. Maybe, maybe I have it a little wrong there. there was, I, I don't know if that was pre-taking into account the profits from one of our businesses. So we also revamped one of his early businesses. That was his cash cow, Birthday Alarm. And Birthday Alarm was making millions of dollars of profits before. It had been declining year over year for five years straight. We kind of like revamped it, tried to turn it around and got it back to, you know, slightly growing basically at that by the time I left. And so um, that covered a portion of the burn. So I don't know if the three or four million was pre that or post that. I don't remember at this point. It's been six or seven years since I was doing that. Which, so, was, there a, was there a developer tool idea that you thought you should do, but you didn't, and someone else came and took the so, opportunity? So I'll tell you three ideas that I think would have worked that we had, that we literally discussed and had the idea for. Um, the first was uh, user testing. So... I used a very early prototype version of user testing, and I was like, "Hey, this is a pain point for a startup." Like, like the 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 company user the company testing? user testing, which is basically like I could pay a hundred dollars and I could get four people to go try our app, talk talk through it. We they would find bugs, they would tell us if they liked it or if they didn't like it. They would tell us what's confusing about it, and I was like, "These videos are amazing! Like, this is saving me so much time versus having to go in the wild and find literally find people, stand right. over their shoulder and watch them do this, or just guess." And I was like, this is a super useful service. And I told uh, Michael that one day, I was like, hey, I think we should build this for startups. And I think we could outpace them in, in terms of marketing because we're here in Silicon Valley. We understand the, the startup game. Like we're, We would be good at getting early stage companies to use this. And usertesting.com is like a multi-hundred million dollar a year business now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It went public at a period of time. It went public. I think it went back private now. Um, but yeah, it, was a, it, it turned out to be a big success You know, eight years later. Uh, like uh, they they took it all the way and took it to IPO, and he was like, "Yeah, could do. Seems kind of boring, right?" <laughs> and I was like, too young and weak, and I idol. I was twenty four years old, and he was my hero, and he was you know my boss at the time, kind of thing. And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right." Dumb. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I even said that, right? Like I, I backed <laughs> off it right away. Same thing <laughs> happened with cryptos. Twenty thirteen, our sysadmin, the the guy who's running like our whole server setup, was like. Guys, I'm mining Bitcoin on this server. <laughs> and we were like, mining what? And he tells us why Bitcoin is going to be the next big thing. All of our all of our engineers were like, yeah, this makes sense. We love this. Um, and our team loved it. And what our CTO was like, hey, no, normally this guy never had product ideas. He was like, tell me what to build. I can build anything. He's like, I got an idea. And I was like, oh, shit, Paul's got an idea. Fantastic. Let's hear it. He's like, um, Bitcoin, I think, is going to be a thing. And there's like no, there's only one exchange. There's a startup called Coinbase, but like they're uh, just getting started. And he's like, I think we could build either an exchange or one of the other like financial services for this like 
cryptocurrency industry. And he's like, they don't, he's like, you, it's hard to take a payment. You know, you can't take credit card. You can't do any of these things that you're going to want to do to enter, like for a, a human being to use crypto. And he's like, we should just start building financial services. Let's start with an exchange and then let's see, maybe we could do, you know, debit cards, on ramp, off ramp. Like, what, what can we do? And he, he was so motivated. He built like a prototype overnight. He got, he, he, he started coordinating with the designer. He like shoved the product manager into a corner and was like, you know, shut up. I got this. And it was just like a great sign for a startup when the engineers are like, I know what needs to be built here. I, I intuitively understand. And then our lawyer, our in-house counsel called up, uh, our investor was like, Hey, the guys are talking about Bitcoin. I Googled it. I think it's for drugs. And like, you know, I, I don't know if this is the right idea. And so he came in and he was like, you know, I don't mind losing the you know three or four million dollars we spend on, on on whatever like that's okay that's an acceptable burn but I'm not going to jail but I'm not trying to go to jail and I'm not trying to do like money I'm not trying to handle like money in serious like ways like this um, I think like Bitcoin isn't this like snake oil I don't know and I like kind of con- I convinced him enough that day to buy Bitcoin I think like he was basically like I don't know sounds a little sketchy he like bought some as a hedge but he was like. I don't think we should do, I don't think we should be in the Bitcoin business because you need a, you need licenses to do this. You're basically just talking about building a bank. It's a super gray area. Right. Uh, I, I'm not trying to lose my billion dollars. Like I can lose the 3 million. I can't lose my billion. And it was like, dude, the message I got. Cock block Michael Bur- Birch. He just blocked you guys hard. I, I, I don't mean to blame him. The, the, the mistakes were all on me. I'm just, I recalled two examples where I think we had good ideas that we didn't what was the third one? see through. The third was, we had built Blab into a business that was like a really good video chat product. And um, it was, it had got to 4 million users. So it was like kind of a thing. So it was basically like, if you see Clubhouse today or like uh, Zoom today, it was like basically like a Zoom call or a Google Hangout, four people could be on the screen talking, but there was like a live audience and anybody could kind of request to join and jump in from the audience and start talking. So you could do like call-in shows and shit like that. Uh, and it got pretty popular. Like Tony Robbins was using it. Like, Famous bands were using it. The UFC was using it. Martin Scarelli. Martin Scarelli was using it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we had we got to 4 million users, but it was like, so we thought maybe this is that thing, that big social product that we've been waiting for. But I, it was pretty clear to me that it was too leaky. Churn like, was high. Yeah, churn yeah. was going to be too high. People weren't going to use this every day. Or the people who did use it every day, they were there just to make friends. So therefore, it wouldn't grow because they didn't bring friends. They were there to make friends. And so you have this problem where um, if you're viral, if you're, Sticky users are people who are there to meet people. They're not going to bring people. And so you're either not going to grow and you're going to have stickiness or you're going to grow and you're not going to have stickiness was the, the problem we ran into. Which is why, by the way, when I wrote that thread that went viral calling, explaining why Clubhouse was not going to work back when Clubhouse was at its peak, the reason I knew that was because we had built a very similar product and run into all those same issues. And sure enough, it's all playing hey, out Hey, so you didn't get rich, but at least you got kind of popular on Twitter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's that. What's the... <laughs> it's like I just dropped four hundred dollars at Chuck E. Cheese, and I got this like you know little <laughs> little slinky laser pointer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I got a laser pointer. <laughs> yeah, that's, so that's cute. You have your you have your little Twitter thing. That's nice. <laughs> exactly. So so that was the the thing there. The move there would have been to shift towards like Citrix was the big Citrix had a thing called WebEx, which was like their like. Uh, video chat, like for meetings and, pres- yeah, was and conferences and webinars. And the obvious thing was we had built a way better tool for webinars or, or like kind of large company chats, like uh, all hands meetings and things like that. If we had pivoted to, to B2B, basically, um, we genuinely had a, a like sort of like, you know, 5X better product than them at the time. And I think we could have made it successful. We even had the idea. We were like, should we do this? We're like, ah, uh, kind of got to do sales and shit. I don't know. Like, do we want to do that? Are we, are we a B2B company now? And it was like, nah, we'll just try again to build the next big social app, which was, you know, a giant mistake. Hey, you're not flying private and you don't have a vacation at home in Tahoe, <laughs> but at least you learned. At least you learned. You know, if yeah. you're not winning, you're learning. That'll be, that'll I'd be rather the title win than of learn. my book. It's a memoir called At Least I Learned. <laughs> dude i hate when people say winning or learning i'd rather win i don't want to learn i'd rather be a dumb winner than a smart loser <laughs> all day of the week 
<laughs> That's oh, easy. Man. I'd rather be winning on my plane, but barely know how to read. Um, <laughs> this is why I love this pod. You get stories like that. Those are good stories. <laughs> yeah, I think we should uh, should wrap it up there. But tell me one thing. What's that say on your shirt? Austin it doesn't matter baby. what it says on that yeah. shirt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got to start getting back into that stuff. Uh, I've been out of the game, but anyway, good pod. That's the episode. Yeah. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. Uh, I put my all in it like no days off. On the road, let's travel, never looking back. Like-